You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The speech you're about to hear by Marshall Fritz was delivered in Seattle, Washington on August the 29th, 1995. It's a luncheon speech that was hosted by the Washington Institute for Policy Studies. The presentation was attended by about 45 people, and we hope you enjoyed this tape version as much as they enjoyed it live. This presentation is copyrighted by the Separation of School and State Alliance in Fresno, California. But, uh, got off the plane a couple extra minutes and thought, uh, gee, there'll be some conservatives there. Wouldn't it be nice if my shoes shine and spiffy? So, Sat down there, and uh, Glenn, uh, the shoeshine man, and I started talking about education and other kinds of things. And if any of you haven't yet philosophized with Glenn in the South Terminal at, uh, at SeaTac, I urge you to do that, because he is a man of wisdom. And uh, so we co-philosophized, uh, quite beyond the, uh, the uh, time allotted for the mere shoeshine. <laughs> and we talked about education, and I asked him, uh, well, what did he think about the state of uh, America today? Parenting today and education today and all that sort of thing. And he thought we we're in some sort of a values freefall or, uh, or just sort of plummeting. Something is really wrong in our society. And he believes that parents are, are many of them, not everybody, but many parents are not really doing building a good enough foundation for uh, a moral foundation of knowing what is right and wrong and having some desire to do the right some of the time. It's not just knowing the difference. It's choosing. <laughs> I think Bonnie and Clyde knew it was wrong to rob banks, so they just didn't choose to avoid that uh, temptation. And I know that in the vast majority of sins that I have uh, uh, commissioned and uh, committed in my life, uh, it wasn't from a uh, failure of, of, of knowledge. You know, I could have passed a true-false test. It was a failure of will. But anyway, the, uh, Glenn was, was uh, concerned with all of this, and I said, well, what do you think the... Uh, the schools are doing. Are they uh, supporting that foundation that the parents, some of them are still building and some of them building more weekly? And he said, no, he didn't, didn't see them as, uh, as really supporting that foundation, uh, the schools. And I thought about that metaphor, foundation, and all of a sudden, the, the, well, this is a pun, isn't it? The, found, the, found, the metaphor got concrete. <laughs> because I started thinking about you know, laying the forms and building a foundation for a building, a home or something like that. So you've got these concrete, it's, it's pouring, it's dried, it's, 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 it is the foundation. And someone comes along with a hose and starts squirting it under high pressure underneath the foundation that you're building, undermining, yes, undermining the foundation. And if you undermine a foundation, if you pull away enough of the, of the earth the foundation is setting upon, the foundation itself very likely then will start to crack then your building, your edifice, will come crumbling down along it. So I, I think that, is, that metaphor, particularly in its concreteness of, of uh, hoses undermining foundations, 
is very apt for what is happening in our society at an increasing rate. It's been happening for over 150 years. It's been happening since the 1840s. This is not something you can let, put on Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Okay? Or Kennedy, or Nixon, or Bush, or Clinton. It's been happening a lot longer than that. This undermining of parental uh, responsibility, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. If there were a sentence, you know, you leave, and gee, that's a nice speech, you know, a nice sermon you say to them. If there was a sentence, you know, if I could only remember one sentence <laughs> that I could then say to the uh, preacher that I liked, if there's one sentence that a person I hope would walk away from this presentation to this one. If there were a test, I would say, you know, get a pencil. This is going to be on the final. And that is that fake rights destroy responsibility. Fake rights destroy responsibility. Real rights don't. Fake rights destroy responsibility. And the way they do that is they create irresponsibility and dependence. And we'll come back to this, but irresponsibility and dependence destroy the individual, the family, and eventually the country. And that's what we're in right now. And I do not blame the schools for ruining the society, nor do I blame the parents, per se, for ruining society. If this is an a, uh, action that has been going on for well over 100 years between the two of them, where the schools usurp a parental responsibility and the parents turn around and abdicate the responsibility. Oh, some of the parents aren't feeding their children lunch. We'll do it. It's a parental responsibility. Let society feed the children lunch. And then the parents abdicate the responsibility. Well, since they're going to be feeding the children lunch, <laughs> and then I don't have to think about lunch. I can spend the money on, you know, fill in the blank. So it's a two-way street. And, and one other caveat I'd like to make, and this might go not only for the audience here who uh, knows and, and loves me already, uh, well, some do, see, you heard a little giggle there, but for the folks out there in television land, is that everything I'm saying is intended to be an attack on the system itself. Now, those of us that were upset with or, or, or not in favor of uh, Soviet farming practices, the collectivization weren't particularly bothered by the individual Russian farmer. What bothered us, what we thought was wrong, was their organizational method. So we could be think a particular farmer was a good farmer. He was working hard. But somehow the system always messed up. And that's what I'm trying to get across with our system of education here in America. It's not bad teachers. Virtually all of them are super. They're excellent. They're committed. They're caring. They're intelligent, devoted, dedicated people. It's not the principals. Same for them. I don't think it's usually the superintendents. I don't think it's the politicians. I don't think it's the book publishers. It's not any of these people. They're all in a cement canoe government schooling that is dragging them all down. So it is the system I wish to attack, and if I do get a little vitriolic, uh, remember it's the system and not the people. It's the system, folks. Could be our catchword. Now, to the body of the presentation. There's a big idea 
in America that Americans have held for now something over 100 years. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think we could probably get 80% of the people even in this audience to raise their hands. And I will say it sweetly the first time, and then I'll say a little bit more clinically the second time, and then I may get around to sneering at it the third time. Every child is born with a right to an education. I think 80% or more of the people in America would hold up their hands to that. And in fact, I want to now tweak it a little bit. Every child in America is born to a, with a right to a quality education at taxpayer expense. I think you might still get 80%. I might have had 99% on the first one. I think you'll still get 80% or something. Every child is born, look at my son, Billy. Uh, he's born with a right to a quality education at taxpayer expense. 80% of the people would agree with. That, I believe, is a fake right. And in fact, I will label it the mother, or by now, the grandmother of fake rights. And this growth of an entitlement attitude, the world owes me and my boy Billy a living, is part of what is destroying our culture. This escalation of rights has reached the ludicrousy that it appears, I read in the Spokane paper today, and where is it? I was going to get this clipping up here, but, but anyway, uh, there is a, a Amarillo, Texas. Apparently a judge has held that a child has a right to be talked to in English at home by his mother. The right to be raised by an English-speaking mother. <laughs> you know where my laptop is? Tom, it's me. Back over in that corner. If you dig into my briefcase, pull out the laptop, open up the laptop, find the clippings and bring them up here, I'll document this, okay? <laughs> it just sounds so ludicrous that you're all sitting around and thinking, oh, no, I just can't. can't. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is America, 1995. There was an article in the... Fresno B, and I imagine it ran here about the uh, lady in Boston who was arrested uh, for being working out in the men's gym. You remember that one, Daddy? <laughs> and what did she claim? She claimed she has a right to lift weights that are challenging to her muscles, and none of the ladies' gyms have enough weight in the uh, stuff. So she has to use the men's gym because of her right to lift weights that challenge her. Yeah. Earl, does that sound pretty reasonable to you? Crazy, isn't it? A right to work out with heavy weights. Here we go. Equipping, please. Da -da 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 -da. Mom chastised for using Spanish with daughter. <laughs> this is uh, today's paper. Oh, let's see. We'll hold it upset. Still upset. I've pulled it too many times. This is the uh, Stockton Spokesman Review. Okay. Well. New contact lenses. We'll see if we can read the paper. Amarillo, <laughs> Texas, a judge overseeing a child custody case told a Mexican native that speaking only Spanish at home constituted abuse to her five-year-old daughter. Now, the mother can speak English. She, the mother is bilingual, but she believes it's important for her daughter, daughter, <laughs> 
daughter. Her five-year-old daughter. She thinks it's important that her daughter be bilingual, so she wants, since the kids can learn plenty of English living in America, in Amarillo, lots of people speak Texan at least. <laughs> so she wants to make sure the child is conversant in Spanish as well. But apparently, this judge is holding that the child has a right to be raised with uh, more English. So crazy. In the 1830s, Tocqueville visited America. He went out to the far west, Ohio. Went down the uh, far west talking to people, went home and wrote a book that is still significant to many people today. And it's insights. And one of the things that he said, that every farmer can argue philosophy. Stand out there and talk Plato or Cicero with these farmers. That the American public education system is the envy of the world. And the public is used in a couple of different ways. You all have Wendy's restaurants here in, uh, you do? Uh, are they public restaurants here in, in there they are, open to public, public restaurants? Okay, they run by the uh, uh, King County uh, Hamburger District? I <laughs> know. Uh, you mean you can have public things that are privately operated? See, for 200 years, America had public schools that were privately operated and financed. We've had more experience in years of privately operated public, public schools than we have with governmentally operated public schools. It wasn't until the 1830s when an odd thing happened to America. Catholics started being imported from Ireland. And the reaction of the typical American toward Catholics was about like Archie Bunker toward a Haitian with AIDS. <laughs> we do not take them unto their bosom. <laughs> and we don't have time for the entire sordid... So by the way, not that the Catholics are such saints. When they're in a majority somewhere, majority somewhere guess what they do? Yeah, we'll take everybody's kids and thump a little Catholicism into them. Thump, thump, thump. And what do the Protestants do when they're in a majority? There, let's take this, change the schools from privately operated to governmentally operated, get the Catholic kids in here and Protestantize them. Christianize the Catholics, Americanize the Irish. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the real, and not only, and it's not some obscure history, this is the standard understanding that the historians have for why we have government schools. It simply isn't taught in our schools because it doesn't sound very nice, does it? Yeah, where's multiculturalism? But the reason we had government schools had nothing to do with helping the poor. There's no evidence in the 1830s that poor children in the non-slave states were ever deprived of an education for lack of funds. No less an authority than Teddy Kennedy says that literacy was higher in the 1830s than it is today in Boston. And indeed, that appears to be a very credible case that literacy was higher in the 1830s than it is now. So the real reason that we even have government schools was to homogenize, to, to capture kids, away, take them away from their parents, and to impose the standard, the majority's views upon them with an imposition mentality, which again, and Protestants and Catholics don't have a, uh, a monopoly on this. In the 1960s, the secularists had won control, and they tend to have the same desire to impose their views on the uh, children of uh, the uh, traditionalists. But I want to get back to uh, this responsibility angle that we started this with. In the 1840s, the government declares 
in America, parents are not financially responsible for the education of their children, the government is. And the parents said, well, thank you, I guess we'll just uh, abandon our responsibility for that. In the 1850s, 52 in, uh, in Massachusetts, and through the 1890s, it took about 50 years, in fact, I think the last compulsory attendance legislation was in about 1914. So it took a half a century, but the government in the various states said, Hey, parents, you are not responsible for deciding how many days a year your child goes to school. You can't make that decision. The government makes that decision. That's called compulsory attendance. In the 1930s, the government came back and said, Hey, kids, you're no longer responsible for taking care of your parents when they get old. We're going to have Social Security. 1960, the government said, Hey, dads, you don't have to take care of the... Uh, mother of your children. We've got aid to families with dependent children and they can do just fine without you. It's not just schooling. But there has been a constant erosion of individual responsibility by the government taking it over. By claiming that people have these fake rights. So the child is born not only with a right you know, Section 8 housing, Section 7 clothing, Section 6 recreation, all the way down to Section 1. I remember when they were building the Marina Del Rey down in Los Angeles, which is what, where I grew up. And uh, I can remember the fights over how many of the fancy condominiums there on the seashore uh, should be reserved for the poor, because the poor have a right to live by the seashore too, you know, in a fancy condominium. Urban villages. <laughs> <laughs> a big idea. A big idea is only going to be replaced by a bigger idea. The big idea is the child is born with a right to a quality education at government expense. And Americans are going to hold on to that idea, bad as it is, harmful as it is, They've held it for a hundred years now. They're going to hold on to that idea until it comes up against a bigger idea. And I think the bigger idea is <coughs> fake rights destroy responsibility. And it's a fake right. The child is not born with that. And, it, and the destroying of responsibility creates the opposite and the alternative, irresponsibility and dependence. Probably a third to a half of the population of the United States now could afford private schooling for their children and don't simply because they believe this is the government's responsibility. They are not rescuing their children from these schools. And these schools are undermining your values. Values clarification was a deliberate, conscious effort for good reasons, by the way, the people were well-motivated. They were literally trying to prevent America from ever having a Holocaust. Louis Raths, Sidney Simon's mentor, looked at those news reels in 1945 as a young man, was horrified, and he had, finally, by the 1950s, he had to fig he figured out that you couldn't, if people were always going to follow these kinds of heavy-duty authority figures, then we would run the risk of another Holocaust. So if he could interrupt this authority thing, if he could get kids to look inside at themselves and, 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 and not to accept authority figures like from their parent and the government and, and tradition and history, if he could interrupt that transmission of, of uh, values by authority, 
that he could actually inoculate a country against a Holocaust. So by this clarification, a deliberate, specific effort to interrupt the transmission of your values to your children was designed with good motives, was bought hook, line, and sinker by the vast majority of schools in the 70s and 80s, and only now are some of the leaders of that movement beginning to recant what they did. No less than Howard Kirschenbaum, co-author with Sidney Simon, wrote in the 1992, June 1992, Phi Delta Kappen, a recanting, and says essentially now, you cannot get a child to clarify values that have not been placed there by the parent. And there is a bit of mea culpa, mea culpa over some, by some of those people. But it is deliberate, it's not malicious. These are not evil people that deserve a role in Batman 4. <laughs> Dumbing down society for the, you know, it's not that way. They mean well. Makes them all more dangerous, of course. <laughs> now, the next subject I'm going to bring up uh, is a tender one, and there'll be folks of all kinds of opinions here in this room. And I don't bring it up necessarily to make my position clear on this, uh, or even to t tell you what, you're, certainly not to tell you what your position should be. Just to understand, wherever you stand on this, of the harmfulness that's done to children when they are placed under the keeping, a caretaker, of someone who is of a different worldview than the parents. So, you all may guess my position on this, but that's beside the point. People start their day, organizations start their day, organizations start their school year with one of two uh, premises or opening statements. God is significant. He's important. God is important, comma, therefore, dot, 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 dot. You know, certain things are going to happen today in my life, in this organization, whatever. There's other folks who say, God is insignificant, if she exists. Comma, <laughs> right? therefore, dot, 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 dot. Right? Two basic ways of, of starting your day, of looking at the world, of of, um, now, what about the children of a parent who believes that God is insignificant? That God doesn't even exist. That's why he's insignificant. They're a nice atheist couple raising their children in the 20s or the 30s or the 40s and sending their children to a public school that was at that time run by a, typically most towns, a, um, a Protestant uh, cabal made up of Presbyterians, uh, Baptists, and, uh, and Methodists. What those parents did, same thing that the witness parents did, the same thing that the, that the Jewish parents did, was they inoculated the child and they said, you go right ahead and you take your times tables from Mrs. McLumphy, she's a wonderful teacher. But when she starts singing the praises of Jesus, you just hum. Okay? I, take, I mean, that's literal. I gave this presentation once and a Jewish guy said, that's exactly what we were told. <laughs> when we moved from the South Bronx to Alhambra, there were only five Jews in the school and we're singing. We never sang any Christmas carols in the South Bronx because the whole school and all the teachers were Jewish. What do I do, Mom? Sing all the words up to the Jesus part, then just hum. <laughs> they inoculated. They told the kids that Mrs. McLuffy's okay, but be careful. Right? Don't take this uh, Jesus stuff from her. But then the Protestants lost the cudgel 
40s and 50s. They lost the cudgel. Protestant prayer was removed from the school in 1962 and 63. Always stick the P word in there. It's important. Did they take the Hail Marys out of the schools? And out of the public schools in 1962, 63 in America? Did they take the Hail Marys out of the schools? Why not? There weren't any. There weren't any in there. <laughs> there never had been. Of course not. The Protestant cabal wasn't going to allow for that. By the way, did they take the Hail Marys out of the Catholic schools in 1962 or 63 because of the Supreme Court written? That's right. But here's the point. The atheists and the alternate theologies to Protestantism inoculated their kids when they sent them off to school when the Protestants ran the schools for a hundred years from the 1840s to the 1940s. When the Protestants lost the cudgel to the modernists, to the secularists, whatever label you'd like to use, I'm not trying to insult a lot of my friends. Did the Protestants smart enough to inoculate their kids? Were they smart enough to flee like the Catholics did and set up their own schools? No, they had a hissy fit. It's not right. We want our schools back. Right? And it's been a hissy fit time for 30 years. Newton friends are still having a hissy fit, hoping they can get a moment of silence. Can't you just see these kids? I'm giving up sex, drugs, and I don't know about rock and roll, but at least sex and drugs now that we've been able to have a minute of silence here at Horace Mann High School every day. I mean, folks, it is time for mental floss. <laughs> the point is, if you believe God is important and you put your kid into a school where for six hours a day, for 180 days a year, for 13 years, it, God is going to be treated as if he doesn't exist, or if he does, he doesn't care, or if he does care, he is so weak, it doesn't make any difference. All of your drug eradication programs are based on the concept that it's good for you. You can never in a drug eradication program in a school say, because God doesn't want you shooting up. And if the kid comes to the conclusion that it's not good for him to give up drugs, then why bother? And what if you could teach a per what if you're a Christian? And what if you could teach a kid to be perfectly moral because it worked out for him? Yeah. What have you achieved, my friend? I don't know it's all that much. The school wars that you're seeing all over this country being fought over 101 reasons in the newspaper. One town it's outcome-based education versus back to basic. Another town it's creationism versus evolution. Another town it's uh, phonics versus whole language. And the next town, you know, new math versus old math versus renewed math. <laughs> the accountant, you know, <laughs> slippery two plus two. You know, well, tell me, what do you want it to be? <laughs> School wars have nowhere to go, my friends, other than worse. There is no peaceful solution other than the separation of school from the government. We don't have Bosnia, India, or Northern Ireland here in America about religion because 200 years ago, really 300 and some years ago, starting with Roger Williams and culminating perhaps with the First Amendment to the United States Constitution,
16 words, Congress will make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But over those uh, 150 years, Americans went through a process of deciding that the child of their conscience was the decision of the parent, and the parent's attitude of conscience was their decision and not the decision of the legislature. America needs to undergo that same, and it won't take 150 years, but that same kind of national discussion about the child's mind. If Olympia thinks that it can set standards for what children know when they graduate, then I defy the politicians, libertarian, democratic, or republican, to distinguish between that and the mind control techniques, the brainwashing techniques of the North Koreans following uh, the, the Korean War. Uh, the, 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 they took the POWs and they said, we know what is good and we are going to use various coercive measures to get this implanted into your mind. And Americans found that revolting. And well, they should. And I defy Bill Spady of outcome-based educa outcome education. I defy, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Bush, uh, Bush, 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 Bush. No, Bush, there was a president named, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a mental block. What's the prior president to Clinton? George. George, George. Hey, I'll see you. I'll see you. I'll see you. George Bush got the 50, gov 50 governors together. They uh, rattled around for a couple of days in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, and uh, some other people done some staff work, and they came up with America 2000. These are the six national goals. Right? Benito Mussolini couldn't have done any better. He used to beg. At every hour, every day, I can tell you which page, which school book, every school child in Italy was on. So Benito Bush <laughs> ran with goal, excuse me, America 2000. One of the leading governors in this whole mess later decided to leave Little Rock and go to Washington, D.C. <laughs> Since he was an architect of the thing, the best he could do was rename it, add to, and we have goals 2000. Where the federal government is designing the hoops, and you guys in Olympia get to decide how to jump through them. Or in, you know, swim unified school district. The speech is absolutely absurd. I ask you to go back and look at Benito Bush's speech. And he says, national standards, <gasps> local control, <gasps> national world-class standards, <gasps> local decision-making, site-based management. You got it. Three times he goes back and forth in the speech. The rhetoric is just marvelous. It's nonsense. You cannot have national standards and local control. <coughs> You can't have a square. Yeah, circle. Yeah. <laughs> but each side is listening to every other sentence. <laughs> and then surprise, surprise, Lynn Cheney finds out that when the liberals get control, they put a liberal historian in charge, and he comes up with national history standards, and they're the wrong standards, and it's hissy fit time again. <laughs> Who would have ever thought naughty people would come up with bad standards? <laughs> Bennett, Alexander, Bush, um, Cheney, Clinton, all the same. 
Chester, check a thin phone show. All right? Keith Geiger and Al Shanker, you can put them all in one big pot. And there's not a dime. Gee, not a dollar's worth of difference. <laughs> they want control. Pure and simple. Tax-funded vouchers are dreamed of by many people who want competition. Charter schools dreamed of by people who want fewer regulations. Both of them merely prune and manicure the weeds of socialism while fertilizing the roots. Because they do nothing to that taproot entitlement, that fake right. And in fact, they extend it. Right now, 12% of the American population is a remnant who has taken its kids out of the schools and is either homeschooling them, Christian schooling them, or independent schooling them. That's 12%, ladies and gentlemen, that do not have their barnacle-like lips on Olympia sucking. Okay? But if you offer them the opportunity to suck, they too then will become a constituency for higher taxes and more of their rights to other people's money. I used to be in favor of charter schools until May of last year, 90, 95, 94. May of 94, the first charter school in Michigan, the Noah Webster School, was a consortium of 400 homeschoolers who were going to charge themselves tuition and buy with the tuition money uh, computers and get into distant learning, distance learning. So the first use of the charter schools wasn't to take a public school and loosen up the controls a little bit. It was to take people who were outside the system and bring them to the bosom of Lansing and say, here, suckle. You're no longer financially, need to be financially responsible for educating yourself, children. Lansing, Olympia, Salem, Sacramento will do that for you. All vouchers do is move our schooling system from socialism to fascism. I use those words not as invective. Thank you. Somebody agrees with that. Because what is socialism? Socialism, plain old dictionary definition, Socialism is the government ownership and administration of the means of production, goods or services. 88% of our children go to schools that follow, fit that definition. They are socialist. They use socialism as the basic mechanism. I said this once to a group of 30 teachers. I said, how many agree? One. I lectured for a half an hour on what socialism is, showed them the dictionary, you know, you know after a half an hour, how many of them agreed? Half. They are in such denial. Tom Sowell is right. In January, well, I can't remember what issue. January of 1984, he wrote in, in uh, Forbes magazine that the reason Americans don't learn the lessons of Europe and such failures and socialism is that Americans don't use the word socialism. They don't use the S word for their own practice thereof. 85,000 socialist schools being run by 15,321 little uh, Soviets called school districts, 45 million kids in those schools, how many of them are being taught explicitly that they attend a socialist school and this is what socialism is? Zero. Zero. And yet the head of the union, Al Shanker, has said the American public school system doesn't work and more closely resembles the uh, uh, collective farms of Russia 
than, uh, than anything else that we have in America. Al Shanker knows more than he knows. <laughs> now I'm quoting my friend Sheldon Richmond, author of the book Separating School and State. Why don't we pass out some of these books and let you fondle them at the various tables? Maybe you want to keep them and try to find out how. Okay? <laughs> Any book fondlers out there? This is the end of side one. Side two is already queued up, so just turn it over and away you go. Funded vouchers are actually harmful because they they extend that attitude of entitlement. They feed that. They nourish that entitlement attitude. What is the answer? It's the same answer our forefathers came to. Roger Williams said, "You know, it's going to be difficult around Massachusetts if we all got to believe theologically exactly the same thing." I'm moving to Rhode Island. And we decided as a country 200 years ago that the government should not be involved, should not establish a religion. No less an intellectual than the Os Guinness, the Protestant intellectual, said that the, the, um, uh, the establishment of the is nothing more than the halfway establishment of Protestantism. We made a mistake. The Russians made a mistake. They let the government take over the schools, they ended up with lots, excuse me, the farms, they ended up with lots of farms and not much food. We Americans made a mistake 150 years ago. We let the government take over the schools, we've ended up with lots of schools and precious little education. The only answer is the separation of school and state. And I'll briefly read and conclude by reading the proclamation for the separation of school and state. We're on our way to getting 25 million people to sign it. We took a poll and found out 50 million people have never heard of it, but all, I mean, the quarter of the population already agrees with the separation of school and state, even though they've never heard of it. It's not been discussed, but we took a commission to poll the Wolfram Group to do that. So we're on our way to 25 million signatures. Uh, if you sign today, you have the chance of being in the first 1,000. I think we're at 381 right now. Proclamation for the separation of school and state. Whereas parents want their children to grow into responsible, competent, caring adults, and whereas more and more children are failing to reach this goal, and whereas parents have both the responsibility and the right to provide an education for their children, it is now time to correct what is wrong with our schools. Why so many schools don't work? Education and values cannot be separated. The diversity of values held by parents and the differing hopes they hold for their children cannot be addressed adequately by a common school system, even if it is well-funded and staffed with talented, caring teachers. We cannot have a society that is both free and peaceful when government legislators and regulators use the schools to shape attitudes or control the content of anyone's mind. Serious disagreements arise between parents and school boards over whose values will be taught. These conflicts have harmful results. One, teachers lose parent support. Two, students lose respect for teachers, parents, and ultimately all authority. And third, 
society divides into factions that contend for control of schools and children. Reform of state schooling can never resolve the conflicting values in education. How do we solve this education crisis? Last paragraph. We can find the solution by studying America's experience with religion. Americans enjoy a high degree of religious harmony, despite holding diverse religious views, because government may not compel religious funding, attendance, or practice. Similarly, government must be prohibited from compelling school funding, attendance, or curriculum. Only then can we protect parents' rights and enable parents, teachers, and students to flourish in an environment of educational freedom. By my signature below, I proclaim publicly that I favor the separation of school and state. Thank you very much. and go ahead and, and whoever might have some questions for Marshall, uh, please go ahead and address them and, and then uh, I have a few concluding remarks right after that. So, go ahead, Marshall. Yes, sir. Bill, no, Arnold. If my hearing aids are working properly, I think you mentioned uh, West. Yeah. Ed West? I did not mention Ed West, but... Uh, good, thank you. <laughs> If Earl Johnson's hearing aid is working correctly, <laughs> he thought I heard uh, Ed, Ed West mentioned, names mentioned, and I did not mention Ed West, the, the uh, uh, author of Education in the State, and, uh, but Ed West is uh, going to be speaking at our first, gee, this couldn't have been a better, you couldn't have asked a better question, and Ed West is going to be speaking at uh, the first annual conference on the separation of school and state, November 10th, 11th, and 12th in Washington, D.C., and he's the recipient of the first Tocqueville Award for Scholarship in uh, state education by our organization. So our first award is going to Ed West. Do you know him? Now, I was talking about the Englishman that wrote the book, uh, State and Education. And that's Ed, Ed West, and I think he may have revised the title, and it's now Education in the State. It was published by Liberty in the third uh, edition. Yes, and uh, Liberty Fund just uh, just just republished it. You yes. were quoting him several times. Uh, I think I was probably quoting other people that were quoting him. But, yes, Ed West is marvelous, and uh, you can see him again if you come to our convention. In uh, yes, well, the voucher system, the first step towards the separation. Because if you said all of a sudden all the taxes, which is not going to happen, are gone, and then you start from scratch again. I mean, wouldn't it be better to go to a voucher system to begin with, and then after a certain number of time, a year or a year or two years, then withdraw the support for the voucher system so the parents are then responsible? Um, the question is, uh, is, can the voucher be used as a stepping stone right. between where we are now and where we want to go? Right. Uh, it's a long answer. We don't have time for it today. vouchers, some concerns from a freedom perspective, and this is a series of writings by conservative and libertarian authors who show why that cannot be done, why it's actually harmful. That you will just create an entire new welfare constituency um, and that will uh, demand that that voucher not only not go down, but it go up. 
um, because I, for one, my children need dressage and fencing, et cetera, et cetera, and, and why should I have to pay for it? It does not attack the taproot problem of the entitlement attitude. It actually nourishes it. Then how are you going to stop this? Uh, the way we're going to stop this is similar to some other big ideas that have come along. There's a big idea that the government, uh, you know, the ending of the divine right of kings and the, and the responsibility of the king for the salvation of his, of his, uh, of his uh, uh, citizens, whatever they're not even citizens, serfs, uh, subjects. That's right. So they always believe that, uh, that Bill Clinton is responsible for uh, our personal salvation right now. I mean, the, and I've attended many an evangelical meet, meeting, and none of them have called upon Bill Clinton to save anybody. Okay? Elder calls just don't include his name usually. <laughs> so we've gotten rid of that notion. We got rid of the notion after 10,000 years of using uh, slavery as an employment technique, uh, the William Lloyd Garrisons, the Harriet Tubmans, the, uh, you know, the Harry Peacher Stowe's, etc., etc., over up in Wilberforce, finally got the notion across. And now, you know, you ask Americans, do you want to bring back slavery? And probably, again, we've got 98, 99% of the people say, no, slavery is not a good hiring technique. Uh, in the Soviet Union, we went from a uh, period where, and everybody knew if they could just get the right guy in charge, then fine. And Brezhnev, it's, you know, <laughs> we'll get Andrew Popper, whoever they happen to be. They always blame it. Notice that the communists never talk about Hitlerism. Marxists will never mention Mussoliniism or Peronism. A Marxist is very clear that fascism is bad, and he calls it for the ism, you know, the, the concept itself. But when he's looking at Marxism's failures, it's never Marxism sucks. His answer is, you know, well, it's Brezhnev's fault. And we got the, the wrong guy in charge. But eventually, now I don't know that the poor people in Russia, they seem to have jumped out of the frying pan and missed the pot holder. So, uh, but nowhere in history do I see where fascism, sir, is used as a stepping stone to get people out of socialism and into freedom. But I know that to get there, we're going to need millions of Americans to disabuse themselves of the notion that their children are born with the right to an education at taxpayer expense. And the evidence of millions of people having disabused themselves of that notion is their signature on that statement, on that proclamation. Yes, sir? You speak favorably of privately funded doctors. How do they not engender entitlement as much as any other format? The question is, how, why do privately funded doctors not... Um, uh, engender uh, dependency or uh, responsibility as much as, uh, as the government does. I think the prime reason is, is that a, when a, a recipient of charity does not believe that they have a right to that charity. Um, you don't go walking into the, uh, uh, to the rescue mission and say, you know, I have my rights, you know, 1,300 calories after a 27-minute sermon. <laughs> You just look at the entire charity function, and it does not, it does, it, it, the, the recipient does not come into it with that attitude. There's a private voucher foundation in, uh, in Milwaukee that has 2,600 children uh, accepting the, uh, the voucher, their voucher. And, uh, and the government voucher, by the way, the one that makes all the newspapers, the Polly Williams voucher, has about 860. They can't even use up. They're authorized for 1,000. They can't even give them all away. Well, there's restrictions, you see, on what schools can accept them. 
That's right. Got to have that. So there's, there's, um, uh, test it. But the, the, uh, the point is, in the, uh, last October, uh, just a year ago, uh, almost a year ago, there was a picnic in Milwaukee for the parents and children of the recipients of the private voucher program. And some of the donors who donated money came. Uh, Governor Tommy Thompson came and they wanted, wanted to come for a 10-minute photo opportunity. Oh, boy, me, lots of kids, this is wonderful. He stayed for two hours. He enjoyed it so much. And the, the recipients and the donors were mixing and having potato salad and chicken and you know, playing one-legged races and you know, three-legged races and that kind of a thing. Now, imagine, if you will, that someone decides to hold a picnic and invite recipients of food stamps to mix with the larger taxpayers in town. I want the cops there. <laughs> I mean, imagine what's going to happen. You know, food fight. <laughs> but those welfare recipients are going to come with an attitude uh, toward those uh, generous taxpayers of, you know, we have a right to this and you're not giving us our full rights, we want more. And the generous taxpayers are going to go there and say, you're spending our money wrong. In fact, I'm, I know so much about how poor people show live, I don't want you ever using the food stamps to buy a hot potato at Wendy's. You go buy cold, raw potatoes at Piggly Wiggly. You notice you never stand behind anybody at McDonald's or, or, or Burger King. Or, or, you know, they never use food stamps there, right? Because they can't buy a cooked potato. Because we, the wonderful taxpayers, know that poor people should get buy potatoes, raw ones, and take a whole bowl. And cook whatever they need them. Well, you know how they should cook their food. Yes, uh, Penny. Um, it seems like another aspect of reason for um, separating the state from the uh, education is because education may not be a right, but it is a responsibility, and it's non-negotiable. And politicians like to get on the bandwagon and, and sell themselves uh, preaching about education. But then once they get elected, it becomes a negotiating thing, whether it be busing or vouchers or whatever. And so education is not negotiable. Right. Education is not. The, the question is, um, um, the question, the statement is that, that politicians uh, run on a platform and then negotiate it. Education should not be negotiable, and uh, it shouldn't be in the hands of politicians. The present company included, though. Oops, he left. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. I'm pinned between the chairman and the president. Which one wants me to ask me a question? Yeah, question. The first is, historically speaking, why didn't Protestants set up their own school system like the Catholics uh, did? And second, uh, how would a school system where you have a separation of school and state, how would that operate you know, with, say, a lower middle class family of uh, four, two kids, uh, not much income in the family, what school would they go to? How would they be educated? Two questions. The first one, the second one is, uh, uh, what about the poor kids or the lower middle class? How would they be able to afford uh, an education? And the first one is, why didn't the Protestants um, bail out when the secularists took over the schools. I think the secularists took over the old boiler, boiler frog uh, um, thing. Okay, well, I hope nobody ever did that. But, uh, <laughs> and I don't even want to repeat it, but to just all drag out the boiler frog metaphor. 
Well, I'll give you an example of how abrupt it was in the 1840s. And remember, those were the days when there wasn't uh, uh, public relations. So people tend to say what they meant. You know, they were Archie Bunkers, you know, kind of a thing. So in 1844, the Bishop of Philadelphia uh, petitioned the school board of Philadelphia. Could the Catholic kids, this is before the Catholic kids, could the Catholic kids please read the Bible in the Douay version rather than in the King James version? And the school board uh, thought about that and uh, prayed on that and slept on that and said no. But the general purpose population thought it was not emphatic enough, so they said, hell no, and went out and burned down a Catholic church. The Catholics, once again failing out by pacifist standards, reciprocated and burned down an entire Protestant neighborhood. Twenty people were killed in the Philadelphia Bible riots. 150th anniversary was last year. Nobody even talks about it or marks it. But the Catholics were getting clobbered. I mean, this is like crystal knocked, metaphorically. They saw that it, you know, they were getting hammered. And it's time to get out of here. Sure. I think that if in 1962, if the secularists had said, all right, what we want to do is tell the kids um, that uh, we're going to give them free condoms, uh, we're going to tell them uh, sex is great as long as you have your galoshes on. Okay? Uh, let's see here. We're going we're gonna to have secret abortions. Okay, we're going to have abortions for, this is young as 10 years old now in New York, where the school takes a child, a pregnant child, and gets her a secret from her parents abortion. 13, 14, not uncommon. Okay? We're going to have secret abortions. Boy, do we have the schools now. <laughs> Protestants? Ha! Tough luck. There would have been that kind of reaction the Protestants would have wised up. Right? But oh, no. Frog might have poisoned the good one. Man, poor frogs. Poor Protestants. What about poor people? What about poor people? Well, that, of course, is a much longer answer, which I won't give today. <laughs> America was able to educate its children when it had one-eighth of today's wealth 130 years ago. And we can again. We're now giving $20 billion a year to colleges. It takes about $25 billion a year to provide sliding-scale scholarships for all, for a third of the, of the children, for one-third. So about $25 billion. Why is that so predictable? We will be coming off a $300 billion tax cut. When Americans discovered in 1946 they weren't fighting World War II anymore, they didn't declare a pizza dividend and have free pizza for everybody. They had the world's largest tax cut. And we can do it again. And when we discovered that the schools aren't being run by Olympia, you can not only not have an income tax, you can not have a property tax. Yay. And with a $300 billion tax cut nationwide, they're needing to use about $120 billion to send the kids to better schools than we're going to today, because socialism takes twice as much money, so the free enterprise will do it for less than half. Americans are going to have $180 billion jingling in their pockets, some of which they will use for pizza and salmon fishing trips. I think it's entirely predictable that they will give 20 to 25 billion a year. They're already giving 20 billion a year to colleges, and proven fact, 
Little kids are cuter than big kids. Thank you. This is the end of this presentation. For more information about the Separation of School and State Alliance, you're welcome to phone or to write us. Phone number is 209-292-1776. Our fax number, 292-7582. The address is 4578 North 1st, Box 310, Fresno, California, 93726. This Tape is a copyrighted presentation of the Separation of School and State Alliance, copyrighted 1995. And we do grant permission to those who would like to make personal copies, uh, gift copies for their friends. Thank you very much, and we hope to hear from you. Bye-bye.